On Color Health Policy, we're going to cover a range of topics, those that are local, regional, um, domestic in terms of looking at U.S. policy, as well as we're going to take it international. You know, on certain episodes, I'm going to have guests on the show, which is great because I love hearing other people's perspectives. And sometimes I'm just going to literally just spit that knowledge at y'all. And that's what this episode is about. We're going to spit knowledge. And the knowledge that we're going to talk about is looking at advanced care planning and how is that such important for minority communities to understand the importance of making sure that you understand how the document documentation should be done towards the end of life care. And I'm not talking about this just because of COVID. I'm talking about this in general. As minorities communities tend to wait to talk about death until death happens. And at that point, it's too late to have those meaningful conversations you should have had a long time ago. It needs to be a topic that we are better prepared for. So on this episode, we're going to cover the history of advanced care planning and we're going to talk about current documents you should know and be able to talk about if you're ever in the situation. And I'm just going to add in some do's and don'ts you need to do with your family if you're ever in the situation where you have to use advanced care planning. So let's get to it. another episode of coloring health policy today we are doing what we're spitting that knowledge at you and today that topic is on advanced care planning why are we talking about advanced care planning like faith why why are you want to talk about death um i don't want to talk about death more so is that i want to educate and make sure you have the knowledge that you know what to do when it comes to end of life care when it comes to your loved ones or for yourself i mean how many of us have basically those documents you know I'm not talking about a will not the last will and testament the one that you read at when it's someone's um, funeral or passing I'm talking about the living will as in who's the person that you have designated as the one to care for your health if you are unconscious or unable to speak for yourself um what does the doctor supposed to know um should they resuscitate you can you be put on a ventilator? Is that your last will um, when it comes to end of life? And if you're sitting here, you're like, wow, that's deep. Then you should think about this. We allow kids at age 15 or 16, depending on your state, to be able to operate a vehicle without understanding that car crashes and car accidents are the number one reason kids in their teens die from. Yet we don't have a conversation of death. We think that's too scary, but yet we're able to let them operate a machine that can kill them. So, whew, that was a lot, right? And I don't want to scare anybody, but I just want to provide you with that knowledge. So I'm going to take a step back and we're going to start off by just talking about the history. Where did the concept of the living will even come from? 
Well, it started off in the early 1900s when people started asking more about patient autonomy, the patient's rights, and putting the patient more at the center and not really allowing for the doctor to make the decisions. And that came about due to a guy named Louis Kushner, who, if you heard that name before, he was also the co-founder of Amnesty International. But he wrote this thing called the Due Process of Euthanasia. And I know that word euthanasia scares you because you're thinking about euthanizing. And he was a part of a movement that um, talked about the ability of the patient to choose whether they want to live and die. But out of that movement, he created what's known as the first living will or the proposal for it. But it's like the law that provides the patient that may not be subject to a treatment without their consent. So the idea that the patient has the power into what they can can consent to and cannot consent to. And the idea that an individual should indicate in writing ahead of time the extent to which she, he or she would consent to treatment. And this concept, it took a while for it to get adopted into American society. It actually took, um, Kushner released this in 1967. It didn't really get adopted by the first state, California, until 1975. And honestly, it wasn't made popular until we had situations within our country where we had women who had um, had accidents or experienced some life-threatening situations that put them in the position to question whether life or death measures should be taken. Um, the first one was in 1975. Nancy Kruzman, um was in a motor accident vehicle and she ended up in a persistent vegetative state. Um, the way that, you know, end-of-life care is set up, when you are unable to consent and you are unmarried, that means that responsibility falls on your parents to make your decisions. And say you are married, then your husband or wife or your spouse in general then makes that decision. If you are not married and your parents are not living, then that would fall onto either your adult child or the next close relative, which would be a sibling. And then it goes down from there. So in this case, her parents had the decision making and they were choosing because of her persistent vegetative state that she'd be relieved of getting nutrition. So being fed through a tube, as well as hydration, being given IV fluids, which would eventually basically lead her to death. This um, reunited, you know, as several other cases within um, our country's history, the concept of what do you have the right to at the end of life? Do you have the right to deny yourself um, being fed? Or do you have the right to deny somebody the right to get fluids? Um, it also led to something that's more recent in our memory um, for those who were alive at that time in 2005, the whole Terry Schiavo case, where we had a woman who was married to her husband. Um, it also, her parents wanted decision making. Her husband wanted to basically end her life peacefully, while her um, parents wanted to fight for her life. And that ended up them fighting in court um, to basically reinsert her, her feeding tube. And this just affected um Terry Shiro and he was in and out of court until she finally passed away peacefully um and this can be done by having someone as your designated healthcare um 
power of attorney or someone who's your healthcare proxy. And when you are unconscious or you're not able to be responsive, they are then put in charge of your health and they are the ones who will be discussing with the healthcare team whether you will receive dialysis, um, intubation, ventilation, CPR, fluids, feeding tube, all those other things that um, we talked about with the Terry Schiavo case as well as the other case. So let's talk more about what's in the components of a living will. And a lot of people already know about the whole end of life in terms of them asking about tissue donation and organ body donation, but also the importance of, like I mentioned kind of briefly, the idea of artificial nutrition or being fed through a tube. Um, Also antibiotics or antiviral medication is also something that can be a part of your living will or components of it that you're asking for or not choose not to ask for. The concept of dialysis, um, if your body is built up with toxins because you're not able to flush them normally as you would be if your kidneys were working, um, would you want a machine that basically would use your blood and kind of take out the toxins of it? Was that something that you would want in your end of life at that point, if need be? Um, Also, you have to know that a lot of these components and living wills vary from state to state. Um, I know that even between New York and Connecticut, the idea of antibiotics being asked at end of life was I saw it in the New York um, advanced care planning, but I did not see it in Connecticut. And that's just two states that are right next to each other. So definitely check out the differences between states and know the differences, especially as someone who is going to be in charge of somebody else's life. And if they are living in a different state than where they made their advanced care planning, make sure that you follow up with them as to what you would want for them at the end of life. So there's different type of advanced care directives. And I want to go through all of them as best as I can. So I'm going to start off with DNR and DNI. So DNR means do not resuscitate. So when someone signs this form, they're consenting to not having basically their heart restarted. And how we restart your heart is through um, CPR. So um, at that time, a lot of people who sign these forms are usually close to end of life and they feel like nothing else can be done for them and restarting the heart would be kind of like futile care. So at this point, they would sign a DNR and saying, I do not want to be resuscitated. Now, DNI is a little bit different, but there's still the same concept. It's the idea of do not intubate. What we mean by intubation is I do not want a tube that's put down on my throat that will allow for a breathing machine to then work and basically um, help me to breathe. At this point, it's the same concept. Somebody is, who is close to end of life, the idea of providing futile care will not change their situation. And, and they are choosing to then not be intubated. Now, there's uh, two different other type of forms that were created for emergency situations for those who are seriously ill. Um, And they're ill within probably experiencing end of life within one to two years. Um, And they want to be able to, um, if they're in an emergency situation, that their wishes will be honored. And this was um, two forms are called the P-O-L-S-T and the M-O-L-S-T, which stands for medical orders for life-sustaining treatments or physician orders for life-sustaining treatments. I just use our acronyms because as you can see, that's a mouthful. (laughs) 
And they're basically um, completed by your healthcare professionals. So the patients will sit down with the healthcare professionals. And in this setting, they would talk about, okay, what happens if you're in an emergency situation? Um, how would you like to be treated? Would you want to be brought to the hospital? Would you want um, medical treatment to be given to you? Would you want to be put in a certain situation? And it puts responsibility more on the provider because the provider has to make sure it was portable. It's periodically reviewed with the patient over time if it's not being used. Like, do your wishes change um, from last month to this month or for those couple months ago to this couple months? And it puts it more on the health professional to make sure that when you have an emergency situation that your medical treatment is still being honored even within the final moments or when the situation see, but still wants to do um, end of life care, then you would probably sign up for the advanced care directives. And those are a lot broader and it talks more about the things that we already addressed. So why did I want to talk about this topic? Um, because right now only one third of Americans who are, you know, not experiencing end of life care or not an advanced stage of towards end of life have someone who's a living will or have uh, someone who's um, their health care power of attorney, you know, and 10, most of these people are older age, educated, have a high income, are white, um, and may have a chronic disease or a regular source of care. And where does that leave people who are people of color? Um, we're not the ones that are have this. So, you know, I've talked to a lot of my friends who are residents, attendings, and things like that. And we talk about how we see this. This is a very common story where family of color comes into the hospital, into the ICU or um, surgical ICU. And because they never had the conversation about death, then that moment they have to make decisions that they were never prepared for. And it puts them in a position where a lot of them, a lot of the times, sadly, they have family member against family member. They end up arguing, end up fighting with the health professionals who um, at the end of the day, just, they just want to make sure that the wishes of the person or the patient that they're caring for are carried out. But when your family is not informed on your wishes for end of life, regardless of whether, you know, as you guys have seen, life changes very quickly. And um, going on a little tangent, you know, eight weeks ago, I had both my grandfather and my uncle living. Eight weeks later, they are no longer living. And that's just how quickly life changes. And so when it comes to end of life and having making sure minority families really understand the importance of having a game plan, you guys should be when you come into the hospital and somebody within your family is close to end of life, number one rule, do not argue amongst yourselves in front of health professionals. That not only shows that you guys are not consistent, but it also puts your person and whoever your individual is in a not a good situation because you guys are not clear of thought and the medical team who's caring for your family member will not be in a good situation. So no, no fighting. Two, make sure you know the game plan. And I struggle with this with my family. It took many years for my parents to really understand what I was saying. I'm like, guys, I need to know what your end of life plans are. 
And it's not because I want to talk about death. It's not because I, I like talking about death. I just want to know the game plan. What happens when you are unconscious? What do you want me to do for you? Um, I felt like, you know, at a certain age, um, it has to become a conversation. Whether that's a Thanksgiving conversation when everybody's around or it's just, hey, let's let's go out for a minute. Let's talk about this. This is what we need to do at the end of life. Um, and third, you know, be flexible with the medical team. And I'm saying that because um, when I was dealing with my grandfather and his passing and with the medical team, you know, it's very different when you have a family member who passed away from COVID. You know, I could not physically be in the room um, or in the ICU room with my grandfather. I had to talk with the medical team who was there by phone. And me coming in there with an attitude or coming in there, you know, ready to jump on them would have affected his care more than would have helped his care. Um, was I taking notes? You know, absolutely. Was I making sure that they were telling me the right information? Absolutely. Um, I was also, you know, making sure that my 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 parents knew and my, my mom and my aunt understood what was going on with him being the person that in the family who has a little bit more understanding when it comes to health and medicine. But it's just so important that communities of color really take the time to really talk about this, not just because we're in the context of COVID, but this is just a life issue. Um, and I've seen this among communities of color. I've seen that they struggle with this so much. So I'm hoping that the takeaways from this many short episodes, bit of knowledge, you guys, is that you understand the brief history of end-of-life care. You understand that there's different forms when it comes to advanced care planning and that you can create one now. This is a conversation that you have now when someone's living, when they're well, when they're able to sit down and have the conversation with you. Ask them what would you want to happen to you if this happens, because when it does happen, you don't have the opportunity to ask those questions. You are put on the spot and you have to make those those choices, those very hard choices. So thanks, you guys. Glad you're listening to Coloring Health Policy. This is the first episode of Spitting That Knowledge. So I'm just spitting at you what it is in the life care. I'm hoping it's you take away something. More Spitting spitting That Knowledge um, episodes to come. I'm excited about this aspect. And we're going to go into the nitty gritty of things. And I'm hoping that you're able to take away something. All right. Stay tuned. Continue listening to Health Policy. Peace out.